Hello, Chillingworth listeners. Thanks for bearing with us over the past week. We were unable to put out our show as scheduled because of Hurricane Dorian. The storm was a minor convenience for most of us here in Palm Beach County. But as you know, our friends in the Bahamas are suffering as a result of Hurricane Dorian, especially those in the Abacos and on Grand Bahama Island. Please keep our friends in the Bahamas in mind and donate to one of the many organizations that are supplying aid The Bahamas are going to recover, but it's going to take a long time, and they need our help. So give whatever you can. Once again, thanks for hanging out with us through the first 11 episodes. If you're enjoying Chillingworth, please give us a five-star rating and review. We'd really appreciate it. Just a quick programming note, we've decided to split our final episode into two parts. Part one is entitled The Creech Cell, And part two is entitled Electroshock Therapy, which will come out in a few days. And now, without further ado, here's the Creech Cell. Previously on Chillingworth. Well, if you did well and good, it would step further. And I'll swear this by my son. I don't know where the Chillingworths are, and neither does Joe Peel. So Floyd believed that his two friends were just hanging out, waiting for the moment when Joe returned to Melbourne after Yenzer informed him that Floyd was a dead man. Within a day or two, Joe Peel would walk into room 127 at the Holiday Inn, expecting Floyd to be in the grave or at the bottom of a canal somewhere. When he was gonna get him out, he'd like to get him out in the farmhouse. (laughs) <laughs> nailing his testicles to the floor, setting it on fire and giving him a rusty knife. They did not want to arrest Floyd until he had spewed details of the Chillingworth and Harvey murders. And then you, you get out there and then, then you got this, got the judge and, and his wife there and said, so, and you're gonna be, they're gonna be a gentleman and the sheriff and let her go first. They go, Ladies first, God dang. Welcome back to Chillingworth. Well, I figured that Floyd wasn't going to be taken. Yenzer had already told us he had a gun, and that he would roll under and get that gun. Is that right? No. 
one. I can hear a telephone. It's the most unique, you know something I've never heard of a person to be in the position he's going to be in this room. Well, let me say this. If, if the guy, oh, I know what I would do. If I had hired Jim to kill you, and I get a call from Jim to come see him in the room, and I go in, and I see you there with a buddy. <laughs> no, I see you alive. That's all there is to it. Well, that's what I'm talking about to him after he gets up. Because I would know, even though it happened like I'd know I'm a dead man. I gotta be. Well, here's the thing about it. He's afraid maybe he might jump out the window. He won't have strength enough. He will. Right there. He will not have strength enough. He enough. won't be able to. He's gonna be a bad man idiot. We decided it was time. We'd, we'd had all we probably could get. And uh, we didn't want to mess what we had up. We wrapped it up there and went, just went around the next door. That'd be a good idea if we had that next room, but if, if it's not raining, we can get it. Waiter got caught in the middle through his tray of a word with classes and everything else. All right. Head up. Get in here. All right. He said, don't shoot. I'm not, I'm not armed. I'm not armed. He said, that is on the shirt. Walk around the bed. Just take it easy with it. Now, get over up. Get that down there wall with it. Way back. Way back. I get wrong, boy. All right. told Ginger when we arrested, he stopped and he said, kid, I want to talk to you a minute. And we all stopped and let, let him have his say there. He said, I can't believe that you've done this to me. He said, do you remember when you and your wife was down and out, didn't have a place to stay, didn't have food to eat, and Peggy and I took you in? He said, and I got you connected with the right people to make a living. He said, and then you turn around and do this? He said, kid, they ain't gonna let you live. And that was about as cold as I've ever heard anything tell anybody, you know. I want my drink. Well, I want Shocked, stupefied, bewildered. A barrage of regrets, possibilities, and fears coursed through Floyd's mind. Above all, he had to be thinking, how did I let these motherfuckers do this to me? It's not clear exactly who Floyd was referring to when he warned Yenzer that they weren't going to let him live. Yenzer might have had some idea, though. Yenzer and Wilbur must have imagined from the start that Floyd would try to punish them, and possibly their families, for their betrayal. And both Yenzer and Wilbur knew that Floyd thought the philosophy, living well is the best revenge, was a crock of shit. Yenzer and Wilbur had risked their lives as informants for the state of Florida. And both men believed that their lives were still in danger, even as they watched the detectives lead Floyd away in handcuffs. Of course, 
Yenzer and Wilbur were hoping to take home their share of the $100,000 in reward money the state of Florida still offered, a cool million in today's dollars. Even half of that amount would allow them to provide for themselves and their families for a long while. Just four days before his arrest, Floyd had been a free man in Rio de Janeiro with his adoring girlfriend, Nazare dos Santos. Nazare had implored him to stay with her. She even offered to support Floyd until he found a way to make a living, or until he got financing for one of his promising business deals. Now Ralph Clark and Henry Lovern and Lovern's colleagues at the Florida Sheriff's Bureau were dragging Floyd down to the Brevard County Jail. The charge? Using a false name to acquire an automobile license. Neither the Sheriff's Bureau nor the Brevard County Sheriff's Department could charge him with the Chillingworth or the Harvey murders at that point because the recordings alone wouldn't be enough to support an indictment. Palm Beach County State Attorney Phil O'Connell was delighted when Don McLeod, head of the Florida Sheriff's Bureau, called him with the news that Levern had collared Floyd. But he didn't want anyone squawking to the press about the remarkable success of the Holiday Inn operation. True, Levern had recorded Floyd spewing out gory details of the Chillingworth murders. O'Connell knew that nevertheless, the legal standard of corpus delecti still had to be overcome. The Chillingworth's remains had never been found. Under corpus delecti, without the bodies, the only way to convict anyone for the murders was to have two eyewitnesses to the murders testify that they'd seen the murders take place. And the only two witnesses were Floyd Holzapple and Bobby Lincoln. Floyd Holzapple and Bobby Lincoln were both in custody. Floyd was being held in the Brevard County Jail, of course, and Bobby was in the federal penitentiary in Tallahassee, serving out his three-year sentence for peddling moonshine. Where was Joe Peel, the man who concocted the plan to kill Curtis Chillingworth? Joe and his sidekick, Don Miles, had come back to Melbourne from Georgia after they'd received the bogus message from Yenzer that he'd done Floyd in. Levern tracked Joe and Miles down and arrested them for hiring Yenzer to murder Floyd. But Levern didn't take them to jail. Lovern took them to room 129 of the Holiday Inn. Then Lovern played back the sections of the tape where Joe, Miles, and Yenzer reviewed every step of Joe's murder for hire plot. No shit like that, Jim. No shit like that. Honest to God, I don't, uh, Jim, I don't want to do business that way. Now, this is a straight deal. I've tried to keep it that way from the outside. I've been slow with money, but otherwise, I've kept it straight. <laughs> Lovern convinced Miles his goose was cooked, even though, of course, Yenzer never had any intention of actually taking Floyd's life. Miles confessed instantly to participating in the plan, claiming that he'd feared Holtzapple was a bloodthirsty killer who was out to kill him along with his entire family. Joe, on the other hand, refused to respond to Levern's questions about the incriminating recordings. Joe insisted on talking to O'Connell, so Levern agreed and headed south with Joe towards West Palm Beach, where O'Connell awaited. Joe's former friend and confidant, Floyd Holzapple, 
was in the Brevard County Jail. In the initial hours after his arrest, Floyd seemed to keep his spirits up. He even joked with his captors. Yeah, uh, <clears throat> uh, I, I, uh, when I was questioning Floyd, we, of course, he, he said, I don't know, I don't know anything. And I said, Floyd, now come on, you know. That, uh, I said, would you take a polygraph test, you know. He said, I wouldn't take a polygraph test on who killed Abraham Lincoln. <laughs> Pretty positive himself. I said, Floyd, you know, you're, you're, you're a funny, funny guy sometimes, and, you know. You're a likable man. He said, thank you. I said, you got one fault, though. He said, what? I said, you kill people. And <laughs> so he said, thank you. And <laughs> but yeah, yeah, Floyd, you, uh, he, he was a kind of a jokester and thing, but uh, he was mean, had a, a mean, he was mean. He didn't question about that. Later that night, once Floyd had had a chance to ruminate about what he was facing, his world began to look very, very bleak to him. Floyd slit his wrists. Guards noticed what he'd done almost immediately and rushed him to the hospital. The wounds weren't severe and he was stitched up. No one but Floyd knew how serious the attempt was, or if he didn't truly want to kill himself, what he would gain by putting on this act. But it is clear that Floyd was very aware of what it would take to end somebody's life, even his own. When Henry Levern delivered Joe Peel to the Palm Beach County Courthouse to meet with State Attorney Phil O'Connell, Joe was optimistic about his prospects. Joe knew O'Connell would have to forge a deal with either him, Floyd, or Bobby in order to get any conviction in the Chillingworth case. And Joe thought the other two guys had actually carried out the gruesome crime while he was sitting on a couch watching a game show. They were career criminals too. They wouldn't be great witnesses. So when he told O'Connell he wanted to negotiate a plea, he probably felt confident about his chances. O'Connell was a brilliant prosecutor who had a sterling record. But the Chillingworth case had been very frustrating to him for years. The investigators he was saddled with didn't come up with anything of value in the three years immediately after the Chillingworth murders. Then, after Jim Yenzer became an informant, O'Connell had to come to terms with the reality that someone he knew intimately, Joe Peel, was behind the crime. O'Connell was not happy that the case had taken this long to solve. It was the most infamous crime in Florida's history, and it had happened in his county. O'Connell told Joe in so many words to bugger off. There wouldn't be a deal. O'Connell wanted to see Joe strapped to the chair more than Floyd or Bobby. He sent Joe back to Melbourne to face charges for conspiring to murder Floyd. Ernie Hutter, the Palm Beach Post's talented crime reporter, was as familiar with Joe and Floyd's criminal odyssey as anyone. Ralph Clark thought his friend Hutter deserved to break the story of the historic arrests, so he tipped him off to what was really going on in Melbourne. After Hutter's stories about the case appeared in the Post, print and broadcast media all over the country flocked to Melbourne to cover it. O'Connell was pissed. 
He thought the release of information about the case in the press might make it impossible to orchestrate his plan to get Bobby and Floyd to confess and testify against Joe. And with the assistance of the sheriff's office in Brevard County, Joseph P. Earl and Don Miles were arrested and charged with conspiracy to murder. There has been quite a bit of speculation in the local press as to a connection between this and the Judge Chillingworth case. What could you say about that? I have absolutely no comment to make on that because our investigation continues at all times and I feel it would be wrong to even deny or admit or even speculate that anything at this time has reference to any other case. While all of this was taking place, Bobby was doing what he did every day, reading the paper. When he saw that Floyd had talked about the Chillingworth and Harvey murders on tape, he immediately contacted his lawyer, Bill Chester, and told him that he was an accomplice in the crimes and wanted to negotiate a plea. State attorney Phil O'Connell accepted Bobby's offer. The deal was unprecedented in the Deep South. A black man was granted total immunity in a case involving two white co-conspirators, and this was 1960. In Melbourne, Joe and Miles were arraigned in the murder-for-hire conspiracy case. Both were released on $25,000 bonds. Joe Peel and Don Miles were under surveillance once they got out of the Brevard County Jail. But Joe managed to ditch the officers who were supposed to be tailing him. Earlier that year, as he and Jack Crane began to sense that the feds would soon come after them, and anyone else even loosely connected to Insured Capital Corporation, they began to make plans to flee, just like Floyd had. The whole time Joe was trying to lure Floyd back to the States from Brazil so Yenzer could kill him, Joe was setting the stage for his own move to Rio. But unlike Floyd, if Joe managed to elude the law and emigrate to Brazil, he'd have sizable assets he could use to start over. Joe claimed to be nearly broke whenever he talked about money with Yenzer. Authorities knew that Joe had kept his grubby little hands on a big portion of the 250 grand that he and his partners had siphoned away from naive investors over the past year. That would be around 2.5 million simoleons today. One of the last things Joe did before he bolted Melbourne for a hideout near Macon, Georgia, was to visit an unsuspecting doctor to get all the shots he'd need to travel to Brazil. Joe could see himself settling into a comfortable life in Rio de Janeiro, especially since Floyd would no longer be a resident. Maybe he had a plan to move his wife Imogene and their two little children down later. Maybe he didn't. Don Miles stayed in close contact with Joe while he was on the run. A few days after Joe had learned that a very old friend, Jim Yenzer, had been deceiving him for over a year while he was an informant for the Florida Sheriff's Bureau. Shockingly, Joe trusted Miles. He'd only known Miles for about a year. And this was after Miles had spilled his guts to Henry Lovern, the instant Lovern played back the tape of Miles and Joe conspiring with Yenzer to kill Floyd. Once Joe had crossed state lines from Georgia, 
and settled into the Hotel Patton in Chattanooga, Tennessee. Miles made arrangements to rendezvous with his mentor. Miles, of course, provided Lovern with a roadmap directly to Joe's location in Chattanooga. With the assistance of hospitable Tennessee lawmen, Lovern had Joe's room wired for sound while he was out, just as he had done at the Holiday Inn in Melbourne. Not long after Miles arrived at the Hotel Patton on November 3rd, 1960, Lovern and his hosts in Chattanooga arrested Joe. At least for now, Joe wasn't going to make it to Rio. Joe had gotten all those shots back in Melbourne for nothing. Phil O'Connell could finally announce to the press how the series of arrests went down. State Attorney Phil O'Connell could now envision Joe's conviction in spite of the formidable obstacle posed by the doctrine of corpus delecti. In judicial hearings, the two eyewitnesses to the Chillingworth murders had formally confessed and had agreed to testify against Joe in his upcoming murder trials. Bobby Lincoln had taken the initiative and negotiated a deal that granted him complete immunity. Under the deal, once he testified against Joe, he'd finish his three-year sentence in the Moonshine case, and then he'd be a free man. Floyd had also formally confessed to the Chillingworth murders and agreed to take the stand against Joe to walk the jury through the spine-tingling, ungodly plot to kill Judge Chillingworth. But unlike Bobby, Floyd had committed himself to do all of this without asking for anything in return. It was a one-sided deal. Actually, it wasn't a deal at all. It seems that no matter how, how bad men get, there's still a sort of a, a little germ of conscience and morality that they never can get rid of. So when P.O. Wilbur lured uh, Hose Apple to come back and plied him with liquor, Hose Apple wanted to tell somebody about all this. In the days following his arrest in the Holiday Inn in Melbourne, Floyd must have been thinking something along the lines of what Joel Daves just suggested. While he was in Rio, Floyd had experienced what it's like to abide by the law, to live a life that wasn't necessarily virtuous, but at least didn't involve ongoing illegal schemes, intermittent thievery, and the odd homicide. Maybe that experience had elicited the introspection that led him to simply capitulate to the prosecution. Floyd's two court-appointed attorneys, Bill Pruitt and Ralph Maybe, had both informed him that he could negotiate a deal. Floyd refused and agreed to do whatever the state asked him to do, without asking for anything in return. This was an act of contrition for Floyd, a way to atone for the series of illicit and vicious acts he had so casually carried out since the war. Floyd had originally hoped that Harry Housen, the seasoned Miami attorney who defended him in the arms theft case, would represent him again. But Floyd had absolutely no cash, and he couldn't find anyone who would lend him money. After Floyd formally confessed and committed himself to testifying without a deal, he spoke with Housen, who essentially chastised him for rolling over. Housen told Floyd something like this. Floyd, your generosity and compulsion to somehow absolve yourself is very nice and all, but those guys still might put you in the electric chair. 
Housen told Floyd he should try to revoke his judicial confession and tell O'Connell he wouldn't testify against Joe without a guarantee of a very short term in prison. After all, Bobby was getting total immunity. O'Connell didn't want to do this. A jury would be much more likely to see Floyd's testimony as sincere and truthful if they felt he offered it purely and not as part of a transaction he worked out to save his ass from frying. The prosecutor in the Sheriff's Bureau told Floyd it was too late. And to make sure that Floyd got the message that he should give up the idea, they threw him in what was known as a Creech cell in the Palm Beach County Jail. A Creech cell is a stainless steel cell with no furniture and no bed of any kind. It's designed for insane or ultra-violent prisoners who might ingeniously strip away a piece of metal, try to fashion some type of deadly weapon, and use it to slit a guard's throat. Chillingworth was created by Texas Crew Productions and Nighthouse Films. It's produced by John Moss, myself, Jonathan Payne, Rick Sykowski, and Brad Bernstein. <laughs>